0: We're so excited to have with us today, Dr. Sophia Pertus Hello, Sophia.
1: Hello, how
0: are you? I'm great. How are you today? I'm great. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited that you invited me to be part of this. Same. We're excited to get started. So Dr. Pertuse is a diversity, equity, and inclusion professional with over 25 years of experience in higher education, nonprofit, and corporate organizations. Dr. Pertuse currently serves as Managing Director for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Billie Jean King Enterprises, and previously served as Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for the... The Jed Foundation. Dr. Produce, you've had a lot of experience in this field, which is, of course, more important than ever. I'd just like to start out by asking you about your career trajectory this far. What are some of the threads that run through this important work? Sure. Well, as you heard, I, I started out in
1: higher education. I was there for over 24 years, And I started out in the usual path of a student affairs professional as a residence hall director, grad assistant, and moved my way into different roles, including associate dean, assistant dean, multicultural affairs, student activities, residence life. So I literally lived on campus at many different campuses, working directly with students. And my last position in higher ed was at Hofstra University as associate vice president and dean of students. And then I was recruited by the JET Foundation, and it was one of those moments where it was a great opportunity to really take the culmination of everything I learned in higher ed about working with students and what young people need to know to be seen as whole people. So at the JET Foundation, I had the opportunity to advise not just the higher ed team, but also as chief diversity and inclusion officer, work with the entire team on, on what we could be thinking about to be culturally responsive in all of our approaches to mental health support systems. And now I made a bit of a shift in the last year. I joined the Billie Jean King Enterprises team uh, last June. And it's been very interesting because it's not too different, although it's corporate and it's supporting and coaching, consulting, and working closely with companies who are looking to um, just create better environments, work environments for their employees and working with individuals who want to do the same. And the thread, I would say, is that it's all about the hope for the future the belief in humanity and that we all can contribute to each other's thriving and wellness. So even though they're all pretty different roles, I would say I have been the same in that my passion has been to just
0: want to do better and really help everyone around me create environments that are better for each other. That's great. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about your work in, in higher ed. You've had a lot of experience in student affairs. So big question, but in your experience, what would you say are some of the biggest changes that have occurred regarding student well-being and how institutions are addressing that?
1: What I think has changed the most in higher education from what I started, there were Student development theories that we learned to help us understand the shift from adolescence to adulthood. And and we needed to learn how to approach students as they came and work on just supporting them. What I realized is that while those frameworks are really helpful and there's many ways that we were doing things that were good as a start, Students are coming as they are, and what's changed is that we needed to adjust, and they were teaching us how to treat them. And as tuition has gone up and amenities have been increased and things have gotten just different in terms of the expectations of families and students, they're now customers. And I, I cringe when I say the word customer, but I've realized even in my career over time in higher education, the people asking us to adjust to them had changed significantly significantly. So I think in terms of well-being, students are requesting and not just requesting, demanding that they be accommodated for and that their needs be met in whatever it is they bring to the table. They, They want to be treated as an individual and not herded into a group of other students. So the cookie cutter ways that we were doing things before... has
0: gotten to change and, and has needed to change over time. And for very good reasons, as you're saying, one of the things that I think is interesting is the change in demographics, right? So it seems to me that institutions are getting this, right? That they need to accommodate To the different profiles of their student population groups, particularly since, and I think I'm right on this, the largest growing student group in terms of enrollment is actually Latinx students, right? So as the student groups become more diverse, institutions really have to evolve. Do you see that happening in a way that that you'd like? Yes and no. There are some places that have
1: really figured it out and have listened to their young people, have looked at their data and said, "Okay, what changes do we need to make within? Because you can't invite diversity, quote unquote, and not be ready to fully engage it. And we've realized, especially in the last few years, that we need new and holistic approaches to how we work with our students. You know, something as simple as how our systems collect names. For the Latinx community, for example, many people go by three names. So I technically, my name is Sophia Bautista Pertus, but the systems we have in place don't collect all three of our names. They demand that we have only two, right? First and last name, and then there's no room for the rest of it. So I think what has happened in the last few years is some schools have figured that out and said, okay, since we're already having conversations about what we need to change, we need to be collecting the information that respects people from the very beginning and from day one. Same thing with names, when you have a pronoun that you want to include in your student data. So I think there's another shift in preparing the people at the institutions for who is coming. So- Care for the caregivers is really important. If the Latinx community or the Hispanic community is the fastest growing, does everyone understand what that means? Does everyone have information about the typical Latino communities? And of course, it can't be cookie cutter. It can't be just, oh, all Latinos are this or that. There are some norms that are pretty common, but Dominican families, I'm from Dominican Republic, are very different than Puerto Rican families or Mexican families or families from Chile or from Argentina. So just knowing that those differences are there, consider who's coming and ask students themselves, what is it that you need? What is it that can serve you better and what support systems can be put in place? But that openness and teaching everybody, including faculty and administrators, what tools they need to just be open-minded, compassionate, and use language that is not judgmental, that does not imply that there's a typical student. And I think we need to remove that word from our vocabulary. If we think, oh, does this serve the typical student? There is really no such thing, but there are Students who may use the resources that you have, but they might not use them the same as everybody else. One group of young people, of students who I feel are particularly vulnerable at this time, especially, are those who identify with the LGBTQ communities. There are so many legislators um, working against just letting people be who they are. There are so many negative media messaging, while at the same time, there are affirming messages and a lot more resources I think there is still a lot of mental health um, and well-being risk that is happening when young people have to see these messages that are negative and just have to um, figure out where, who they are in the world and what kind of support they might or might not get. So I think college and, and university administrators really need to think about what they can be doing to make sure that they're part of the support and not part of the negativity that's happening around LGBTQ plus identities.
0: So you recently worked for the Jed Foundation, which I'm sure our audience is well aware is the leading mental health and suicide prevention organization in the country, working with colleges and universities. They do great work. Your role was advisor on DEI, which is a huge issue in student mental health, as you've just described. You were sort of describing it in general, but specifically regarding mental health. What do we need to know? about the impact of a student's identity on their mental health and well-being? And what should institutions be thinking about?
1: I would say in terms of student well-being, to see each individual as an individual who has a holistic perspective on life and is showing up with so many different considerations for themselves, right? Their history, their background, their academic preparation. Those are some of the things that students bring to the table, But they also have what their aspirations are and societal messaging around who they are, who they are not. So, for example, the last few years, as we know, we were dealing with the pandemic. We were dealing with racial awakening and awareness. And it's really hard to be, let's say, for example, a student of color, just concentrating on your coursework when you're watching what's happening to Black men, Black women, And other people of color who are being brutalized, Asian people being attacked. How do you focus and say, okay, I find solidarity with those people and I'm trying to figure out, is that me? How do I cope? How do I concentrate on just getting my everyday work done when I I feel like my life is not valued? I'm not mattering. And that's why, you know, when you think of the hashtag Black Lives Matter, there's conversation about don't all lives matter? And yes, true. But I think... The idea of of well-being and how your identity connects with that is something that I don't think we've we've had as much conversation as we've had in the last few years about the connection there. So, for example, a student who shows up to class and and an incident just happened. The fact that a faculty member would just start class and just, you know, not say anything when there might be some students in that class that are kind of suffering and are watching the news and even just right now in this moment, a strategy is start the class with how's everyone doing? What do you need to leave behind? so that you can concentrate today and focus on this work that we're doing together. And, and that culturally responsive and just raising the awareness that there's people that are bringing in their, their own emotional issues that might be impacting their ability to really do their work.
0: Right. I mean, trauma really is is what you're describing and people are experiencing what's going on in the world and what has been going on in the world in very different ways. So that is a great point. Another dynamic, Sophia, that I'd love you to comment on, and I'm curious about this in terms of identity and mental health health on college campuses is, particularly in terms of of folks' ability to perform well, is the sense of belonging, right? Do you feel like you're included and engaged with the campus community? And I think what we're seeing from the data is a lot of students are saying, not so. What do you think about that? The Jed Foundation uses the
1: comprehensive approach to think about support systems for mental health. And it's a way of looking at a campus community or or even high school community now that says, okay, in this community, whose responsibility is it to care for students? And technically it's everybody's. Everyone should have a hand in being able to offer resources, offer connection, offer some kind of kindness, kind word to let a student know that they matter and that their success means something to them. And it can come from anybody on campus but what I'm finding is that unfortunately that's not what everyone sees themselves as in terms of their role so I remember spending a lot of time you know my whole career in higher ed focusing on this but definitely at the jed Foundation thinking about how to let campuses know that your involvement as an administrator as a faculty and as a as a fellow student is a key to making sure that every single student, every single person on that campus feels like they belong and that they're connected and that everyone would have the tools to do that. And it doesn't come naturally to everybody, unfortunately, because when it comes to mental health and wellness, I think people get nervous because they don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't know if they should speak up and ask someone how they're doing because maybe they don't want to hear what the answer is. Or if they heard an answer that makes them nervous, they don't know what the resources are. So I remember that was a big part of the work that I was doing with the JET Foundation. And, and they, they work really hard to let everybody know anybody can be someone's really positive connection to, to feeling like they belong and feeling connected to a campus. You just have to, there's no wrong door is what, is what I remember. For example, Dr. Nancy Roy used to say that all the time. There's no wrong door. There should be someone on campus that makes you feel like there's a reason why you're there and that you're
0: feeling connected because they want you there. They want you to to succeed. Yeah, that's great. You know, it's funny, these are very similar dynamics to the workplace, right? To the corporate world, particularly for young workers who are just leaving college and entering the workforce. Let's talk a little bit about your work with companies. So companies are trying to figure out how to manage generational differences, right? Especially with its new hires who come in fresh out of college. What are your thoughts on these different perspectives. Oh, I have so much to say about generational differences. One
1: thing I see a lot is a tension between the traditional way of working and doing things and new creative ways. And usually it's it's age-based, right? But it's not always age-based. Sometimes it's not. But there is a significant difference with who we call digital natives, who have always lived on the computer, who have always had apps and really accessible ways of accessing information and being connected Then there's some of us who are still figuring it out, even after all this time, and have values that are very different in terms of what engagement looks like, what work ethic looks like. So I see a a lot of different thought processes and onboarding disconnection. So, for example, there are companies who are saying they want to diversify their teams, right? And, And I wish people would stop saying, I want a diversity hire, because that's just cringy. Like, just say... I want my team to represent the world around us. That would be the best way to to really think about it. And when they say that, they want to bring on new team members. And if the team members have a different mindset, perspective, race, culture, gender identity, any of those things, different than what is quote unquote the norm, back to that idea of typical or the norm. What I'm realizing is that companies have not adjusted their onboarding processes. They haven't adjusted teaching their senior leaders and managers along the way that you need to give newer employees just as much respect and and listen to what they're saying, because innovation can only happen if everyone is willing to see everyone as a contributor to the workplace. So that tension of, okay, who knows better and who has been here longer is really going to be detrimental if you don't see some of your newcomers as someone who can contribute and who can bring new ideas that actually could be really great. Even though they don't have the years of experience, they could bring something new because they've now been exposed to a different mindset of thinking. So that's one thing that I see in the workplace a lot, that senior leaders see themselves as the experts always. And that could be true. And that experience is valid. However, there's also a new mindset with opening up and really seeing everyone as a common contributor.
0: Yeah, I get that. I, even if with our own team, I'm, I'm a- always learning from the the young folks that are working at the institute because they know so much more than I do on so many <laughs> subjects. So I get it, and you know so much also, right? So it's
1: like you can learn from each other. And if you if you can set those things up as co cool mentoring instead of just this one way mentorship, you know, I'm older, I'm going to teach you. It's like, oh, I'm older, and I want to learn from you too because there might be something I'm missing mm-hmm. it, as I try to serve the next generation of people.
0: We're taking a quick break to thank the sponsor of this episode, Christie Campus Health, dedicated to supporting the mental health and well-being of college students. So I know you get paid to do this, but there's so much we can talk about in terms of your corporate work, but if there was one thing you could change, and I'm guessing it might have something to do with even the terms we use, for folks who are constantly I mean, we hear it all the all the time in corporate America now, DEI, DEI. what would you say is, is the the one thing that corporate America could do to really get this right? Wow.
1: One thing corporate America
0: could I do know, to make it me on the spot. <laughs> This one is really tough. You can do a couple, maybe two or three.
1: Okay. Okay. That's that's much easier. Two or three things. One, the one I said before about listening to younger folks because they are exposed to language and identities and ways of looking at the world that someone in, who's older just would never understand because they, you know, obviously they lived a different life and, and saw different things. So I would say listening to n- new generations and figuring out a way to honor those voices and validate them early on in their career so that that builds their confidence. The other thing I would say is there's a lot of strategies around diversity and inclusion, right? So it's like, oh, everyone needs to have training or everyone needs to know how to think about unconscious bias. And all those things are great. And the awareness raising is great. So the last two years, what we've seen is so many people enter the conversation and put up these diversity, equity, and inclusion statements and say, oh, this stuff matters to us. We really want to make sure that we are a company that shows that we're trying to be diverse. The problem is the action steps behind it do not match. They mm-hmm. are not looking at their equity and pay. They're not looking at their hiring processes to see if it's fair. And if they're not using the old fashioned, do you know someone or someone already in your network or giving preference to certain schools versus others because they perceive that the caliber of students coming up from one school are better than another. Not giving opportunities to just diversify your sources of recruitment. So I would say that's a pretty easy one, but not so easy because it disrupts the regular way of recruiting that you might have. The final one I would say is creating formal sponsorship and mentorship. So mentorship is someone who's willing to take someone under their wing and really show them a little more about the industry and teach them a few things about how to better connect and do their job sponsors are people who will speak up for you when you're not there and will say, you know, I'm I'm not sure if, you know, for example, me as a Latina, early in my career, I was so lucky. I had people who were willing to give me a chance and were willing to say, you know, Sophia seems to have some potential. I'm going to put her in this project, this really cool project for for the institution that I think would give her some exposure to other departments and other areas. And that's how I learned a lot about higher education and, and a lot about how things run behind the scenes. So if you're willing to do that and put people even in the room during important meetings, I think that is one way to expose that diversity. The, the people that are not usually at the table can now be at the table in a different way, even if they're observing at first,
0: but I think they can actually contribute. That is Awesome advice. Thank you so much for that. I have one last question, and it's about you. I want to just hear a little bit more about your issues, what you're passionate about. I know you do a lot of community work, so talk a little bit about that. Sure. I mentioned before that I was Latina, and that's a really salient identity
1: for me, right? When I was coming up in my career... I was very lucky. I had mentors. I had sponsors. I had all kinds of people who supported me. However, midway through my career, I was getting really stuck because as I was applying to senior level positions, I noticed that other people were just not giving me the opportunity anymore. It was like, no, no, I like you doing exactly what you do and right, and stopping right there. I don't see you as an executive leader or... I just don't think you're ready. Meanwhile, I would watch around me and see other people get advanced and they were just different than me. They were either a different race, a different gender. And I was like, something's going on here. So when I was mid-level in my career, I worked on my dissertation and I actually wrote about Latinas in mid-level positions and how race, ethnicity, and gender impacted career trajectories. And while I was in my dissertation process, I was really frustrated because it was just hard and lonely. And I have really supportive faculty. So I have to give a shout out to my faculty at Seton Hall. They were amazing, excellent committee. However, it's just a lonely process. So I started a Facebook group called Latinas Completing Doctoral Degrees. I said, okay, maybe like 15, 20 of us could get together on Facebook, give each other ideas and just some support and now it has 8,800 actively participating members. And because of that group, I've served on five different dissertation committees just because someone sent me a private message to say they were struggling and I became their advocate <laughs> on their committee. And it's been really cool. It's been written about. It's been thanked in many dissertations. I find it hard to believe, but you know, a lot of people have acknowledged the group in their dissertation acknowledgements to say, you know. If it wasn't for the group, they were not getting the support at their own institutions because they were the only ones. So I'm very passionate about supporting Latinas because I still think there's something happening in the world where we're not getting the support we need. We're still the f- the final salary <laughs> left behind when you think of salary equity. There's the pay equity days. So when women in March, I forgot the rest, but I know that for Latinas, it's the last one. We're at 55 cents to the dollar. So between the support systems for dissertations and graduate school to support systems for our careers. I am very passionate about supporting Latinas and just trying to figure out what do we need to be doing differently, but what do people need to be doing for us to help us advance in our careers? I even started a course called Latina Inside Academy. It's a private course that I've been doing for the last two and a half years, just helping uh, Latinas think about their self-awareness, their confidence, and building them up to say, you are valid. You bring a lot to the table. You are powerful. But unfortunately, everyone else is telling us that we're not. As you can see, I'm very passionate about this. And it's something that I've been doing. And a lot of people don't know that I'm doing that because it's very like on the side and it's my own private passion. But I think at some point I would love to be more vocal about that and really point out what is going on and figure out what can we be doing to get us in those senior level positions, because there's not that many of us. I think there was one Latina president for a private institution and, you know, Dr. Shirley Collado, and she recently stepped down to take on a new role as a senior college track. She's amazing. But there's not that many of us. We're
0: not we're not there. So we need to be there. Well, with your work, I'm sure there will be, uh, and we'll be hearing about Sophia Pertuse for sure. The passion that you bring to this both professionally and personally is really outstanding. This has been such a great conversation. Dr. Sophia Pertuse, thank you so much for being with us on the quadcast. We are so delighted to have you. And I know we'll be seeing you in a couple weeks in Washington for our president's convening on college student mental health and wellness. We can't wait to hear more of your thoughts and perspectives. So once again thank you thank you for this opportunity i really appreciate it and i can't wait to be part of that event terrific take care this has been the quadcast a program of the mary christie institute to learn more about our work go to mary christie institute.org where you can sign up for our other programs like the mc feed and the mary christie quarterly and if you like what we're doing leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player